This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website www.anchorchurch.com.au Good morning, Anchor. Good to be here with you. People ready? Excited? Good to be here. My name is Brad Koneman. I'm one of the pastors here at Anchor and part of Forest Lodge Gospel Community and have the privilege this morning of continuing our series in the story of Jacob. Let me ask you as we begin, where do you go to meet with God? Where can you access God's presence? How can you experience the transcendent? In the ancient world, people used to build high places, temples and shrines up on the mountaintops because they thought that was closer to heaven, closer to the gods. My wife Catherine and I experienced this 10 years ago when we went to Petra together, the ancient Nabataean city in Jordan, fresh-faced. Petra isn't just the kind of scene from Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. It's this huge city complex and they built their temple monastery up on a mountain. You take an hour-long hike by donkey or stairs to get up there and you kind of emerge through the clouds to the monastery because it's closer to the heavens, closer to the gods. This story is repeated in the Bible in the Tower of Babel people trying to build a temple up to heaven to try and reach the gods. Where do you go to meet with God? Where can you access God's presence? How can you experience the transcendent? This isn't just a question for religious people. Secular people also are trying to touch the transcendent. I was reading an article yesterday on the humanist online And they were trying to debunk the myth that secular people aren't interested in purpose and meaning, that kind of just because they've got rid of God that their lives are boring and selfish and mundane. He was saying, no, secular people also are trying to access the transcendent, but we're not accessing it on the vertical realm, we're accessing the transcendent on the horizontal plane. And we all do this, don't we? Like even this weekend, Catherine and I went out last night on a date. We went to the movies, got dinner, and it was a really special time together. But we came away from both the movie and dinner going, that was good, but it wasn't mind-blowing. And like, don't we do that? Like we're looking for those mind-blowing experiences. We're looking for those amazing new cafes, restaurants, thrilling movies, and we had a great time. But it wasn't like the movie or dinner, it wasn't mind-blowing. But how else do we search for the transcendent on the horizontal plane? You know, we go out into nature, don't we? We go up to the Blue Mountains, those amazing valleys and canyons, and we experience this mind-blowing sense of awe and wonder. We search for the transcendent in alcohol or substances, trying to get a bit of a high. We search for the transcendent in sex. And one author I wrote this week said that our sexual desire is a homing beacon for the divine. Where do you go to meet with God? Where can we access God's presence? How can you experience the transcendent? Well, as we look at the story of Jacob's ladder this morning, we're going to see that we can't experience transcendence by trying to climb our way up to heaven. No, heaven needs to come down to us. So let's pray as we look at this story. 
Father, we acknowledge this morning that you are present with us here by your spirit. We ask that you would give us a tangible awareness and attentiveness to that this morning. We ask that you would change us as we meet with you in your word, that your Holy Spirit would be changing us as we encounter you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we walk through this story of Jacob's ladder, we're going to see the prominence of sky imagery in the movements in the story. We're going to see the night, the dream of heaven, and the morning. So if you're taking notes, that's kind of how we're moving through the passage. First, the night. Have a look at verses 10 and 11. Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. Last week, we saw Jacob steal his twin brother Esau's blessing, and Esau wasn't very happy about that, was he? He's kind of gone into a murder, murderous rampage and wants to kill his brother Jacob, and so Jacob has fled, fled from his family. He's run away from Esau, he's run away from his family, and in doing so, he's running away from the blessing of God. God had promised Abraham this land of Canaan and Jacob's running away from it. He sets out on foot for a 700 kilometre journey north from Beersheba up to Haran. He's retracing the steps of his grandfather Abraham, but in reverse, he's running away from the land. Jacob is a fugitive, an exile. He's on the run. He's in the open country. Now you might remember Esau was the man of the open country, his twin brother. Esau was a hunter-gatherer. He loved roughing it under the stars. Esau would have been in his element in Jacob's situation. But Jacob is a homebody. Jacob is the kind of guy who, you know, stays in his bedroom, in his pyjamas, playing Fortnite all day. He doesn't like camping. Glamping is even too rough for Jacob. His idea of a holiday is a five-star resort where he can get his nails done, stay in his bathrobe, order room service. Jacob is a fish out of water. The sun goes down, it becomes dark, it's night. It's cold. Jacob is exhausted and hungry after a long journey, it's time for, time for sleep. But Jacob didn't have time to pack any of his camping gear. He doesn't have his tent, doesn't have his sleeping bag, he doesn't have his teddy bear. He's got nothing. He left with his staff. He doesn't even have a cloak to bundle up under his head for a pillow. And so he finds a rock and lies down for sleep. One commentator said that the physical setting of this narrative mirrors Jacob's psychological situation. Jacob is entering a, a dark night of the soul, an existential crisis. He's profoundly alone, he's helpless, he's vulnerable, he's exposed. How might he be feeling? Is he experiencing regret for stealing his brother's blessing? Shame for deceiving his father? Is he afraid of the dark? Is he afraid of predators? What? What's that noise? Does he know where he's going? Jacob is at his lowest point in this narrative. And we often think that when we're at our worst, God is at his most distant. But here we see that 
It's when Jacob's at his lowest point, when he's running away from his family, when he's running away from the blessing of God. This is the moment when God comes to him. God meets Jacob on the run. And this story is repeated throughout the Bible. Think of the prodigal son who runs away from his father, runs away from his family, and God comes and meets him in the pigsty when he's at his lowest. Think of the story of Jonah who runs away from God's command to preach to the people of Nineveh and God comes and meets him where? In the belly of a fish. The psalmist cries out, where can I flee from your presence, O God? God meets us on the run. And so what are you running from in your life? Where are you experiencing a dark night of the soul? Have you done something you regret and you're trying to avoid the consequences? Are you experiencing conflict in a relationship or a relationship breakup and you're running away? Are you running from God? The good news of Christianity is that God does not wait for us to take a step towards him. You can run as far as you want, but God is there. You are not out of his reach. And so God comes to Jacob at his lowest point and meets him in the dream of heaven. Have a look at verses 12 and 13. This is what Jacob sees. Jacob had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord. William Blake, the English poet and painter of the Romantic Age, depicted this scene of Jacob's Ladder in this artwork behind me. This is how he kind of encapsulated what he thought Jacob might have seen. But actually, people think that what Jacob saw took a lot more of its kind of referent from the ancient Near Eastern context, and particularly this idea of a ziggurat, which is a Mesopotamian tower temple reaching to the heavens. In ancient cosmology, this kind of place, this kind of temple was seen as a connection point between heaven and earth. They call it the Axis Mundi, a link between the world of the gods up there and the world of humankind down here. It's kind of like the Bifrost Bridge in the Marvel Cinematic Universe that Thor and the Asgardians used to travel between the realms. This is kind of like the link of the realms, the link of the realm of the gods and of earth. What does Jacob see? He doesn't see kind of a ladder. He sees a big stairway, the front of the ziggurat going up and angels coming up and down. Now, we shouldn't picture Cupid, like a little baby with wings on. We're thinking kind of big... Big divine angel messenger warriors. And at the very top of the ramp of the stairway is the Lord. And in the Bible, whenever, come, whenever anyone comes into the presence of the Lord, it's a terrifying experience because he's so holy and majestic. This is what Jacob sees in his dream, the meeting place of heaven and earth. And then God says something to him in verses 13 to 15. First, God reiterates the promise that he made to Abraham, a promise of land, a promise of descendants, that his descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and a promise of blessing, that through Jacob and through this family, God will bless the whole world. And then on top of this, in verse 15, God makes personal promises to Jacob. 
He says, I will be with you. I will watch over you wherever you go and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I've promised you. Even though Jacob is running away from God, running away from his family and the blessing of God, we see that he is firmly in the grip of grace. We see here God's unshakable commitment to his promise that he will do what he said. He will give this family the land. He will bless the whole world through them. And then in verse 16, we see Jacob's response. He says this, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. Jacob was afraid and said, How awesome, how fearsome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. God comes to Jacob in this nowhere place. He's not in a high place. He's not at the temple or the shrine to meet with God. He's not expecting any kind of religious or transcendent experience. But this nowhere place becomes the house of God. Jacob calls it Bethel. And in Hebrew, Bethel is literally house of God. Bethel, this is the house of God. God is opening Jacob's eyes and ours to a new reality of how we can access his presence. We don't need to go to the temple or the high place to meet with God. We are the house of God. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. God is present and available to us anywhere, anytime, in our nowhere places, when we're on the run. As you get on the bus tomorrow morning, God is there. As you get your coffee Walk into the cafe, say good day to the barista. God is there. As you walk in the doors of the office, God is there. As you take your kids to the park, God is there. God is present with you, always, all the time. He is always available to you. Now you might think, well, why should I bother coming to church? I mean, if I can just go to the park and meet with God, why would I come here on a Sunday? Well, it's true. We, we can encounter God in our daily lives. We don't need to come to some kind of religious service where a priest or worship leader is going to usher us into the presence of God. Jesus has already done that. Jesus is our high priest. He's already opened the way to God. Jesus is our worship leader who brings us to God. And yet, God is present in a special way when his people come together as the church. Jesus says this himself in Matthew chapter 18. Wherever two or three are gathered in my name, not wherever one, but wherever two or three are gathered, there I am with them. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says that God is building the church together to be a temple, a holy temple for the Lord, a dwelling place in which God lives by his spirit. Do you know that God is here with us now? God is present in our gatherings by his spirit. When we gather as the church, we come together not just as some kind of social event, but to meet with God. Do you realise how significant that is? Is that how you've come here, ready to meet with God this morning? Because that's what's happening right now. And yet as we leave this building, we don't leave the Holy Spirit at the door. So often we go through life blind to God's presence. You know, we're, we're focused, we're so nearsighted, we're walking around kind of focusing on our life. 
and our problems and our pain. And we, we're blind to God. So often we compartmentalise our lives into sacred and secular. We, you know, we go to church, we go to gospel community, they're the places that we meet with God, but everywhere else, well, that's just my space. We forget that God is present to us and available to us wherever we are. The Christian author and pastor Eugene Peterson, who passed away this week, suggests that we need to cultivate attentiveness to God's presence. How can we as a church, how can you as a follower of Jesus cultivate attentiveness to God's presence, to to remove those blinkers so that you can see God at work in your day-to-day life? Well, I think the spiritual disciplines of spending time with God in his word and prayer are vital to this. And yet Eugene Peterson also warns that we can do those activities of word and prayer with no awareness of God's presence. We need to be build, so we need to be building in habits of reflection and attentiveness to identify how God is at work, how he's opening doors in people's lives, what he's leading you to do. Uh, habits of thankfulness to be able to look back and say, whoa, there is the hand of God. One of the ways that we do this in our gospel community is sharing stories over dinner. Each week we share mission moments, sharing stories of doors that God has opened in people's lives for us to be able to bless them and speak about Jesus with them, sharing stories of how God has been at work in our lives through all the ups and downs to try and kind of remove those blinkers and be able to cultivate attentiveness to God. God is present and available to you anywhere, anytime. And we need to pray for eyes to see. Well, the sun rises. It's morning time. Jacob wakes up and he's like, whoa, that was a pretty crazy dream. What was in those berries that I ate last night? And Jacob responds to God's revelation in verse 18. Early in the morning, Jacob took the stone he'd used as a pillow and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. In the Old Testament, oil was used to consecrate things to God and Jacob is saying, God was in this place. He's setting up a physical monument and memorial to remind him God was in this place. And then he makes a vow to God in verse 20. He says, If God will be with me, and if God will watch over me on this journey I'm taking, and if God will give me the food to eat, and if God will give me clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's house... Then the Lord will be my God, and this stone that I've set up as a pillar will be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. Now to me, it sounds like Jacob is bargaining with God. Does anyone else hear that? If you do all this stuff for me, God, then sure, you can be my God, and I'll give you a little bit on the side. You know, Jacob has just had this huge revelation from God, this huge promise from God, and it seems like he's now back to his scheming ways. We would never do this, would we? We would never put conditions on our obedience. We would never hold back surrender until God comes through for us. Can you imagine if God did this to us? If we had to jump through all the hoops and fulfill all the if clauses for him to accept us? Well, the good news is that God was never interested in a contractual relationship with us where blessing is conditional on performance God has always wanted a covenantal relationship based on promise, based on his 
faithful character. See, God has already gone all in. He's already put it all on the table. He's already fully surrendered himself for you, for us. And he's calling us to trust him in response. Here we see Jacob turn towards God, even though it seems like it's got like mixed, complicated motives. It's still a turn towards God. In Jacob's story, this is the beginning of his character transformation. God is no longer just his parents' God. This is the first time that we hear Jacob say, you will be my God. And we learn here that all our acts of obedience in response to God's grace are imperfect. There's no such thing as like a pure offering that we can give. And yet God still accepts our imperfect worship because he's our father and he loves us. It's like when Reuben brings me a drawing of a house. What do I do when he brings this to me? Reuben, that's not a house. It's not good enough, mate. Don't you know what a house looks like? A house has a foundation. It's got four walls and windows and a roof and a chimney and an apple tree. Come on, mate. It's not good enough. Do better. Would I ever say that to my son? How do I respond when he brings me his house? I'm like, Reuben, man, that is amazing. What an incredible artist you are. You are so creative. I think this is, tell me all about it. I want to know more. That's how God receives our imperfect offerings. John Calvin, the 16th century reformer, says this. Children, sons, do not hesitate to offer their fathers their incomplete and half-baked and even defective works, trusting that their obedience will be accepted by their fathers, even though they haven't quite done what their fathers intended. Such children ought we to be, firmly trusting that our services will be approved by our most merciful Father, however small or imperfect they may be. In response to God's mercy, he desires full surrender, and yet he loves even our small turns towards him. This story has asked us the question, where do you go to meet with God? Where can you access God's presence? Where can we experience the transcendent? Christianity is different to every other religious system, every other philosophy, every other secular search for transcendence. They're all like the Tower of Babel, humanity trying to climb its way up to God. But in this story, we see a reversal of Babel. And we learn that Christianity isn't a stairway up to heaven. No, it's a stairway from heaven to earth as God comes down for us. In John chapter 1, Jesus refers directly to this story of Jacob's ladder after calling Nathanael to be his disciple. He says this, Nathanael, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You shall see greater things than that. You shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What does Jesus mean? Jesus is saying, I am the true stairway to heaven. 
I am the axis mundi, the connection point between heaven and earth. I am the only way to God. We don't need to go to temples or high places to meet with God. God God doesn't dwell in houses made by men. We can't climb our way up to heaven. All our efforts to touch the transcendent through sex or drugs or religious checklists are Babel projects. They're going to fail. No, heaven needs to come down to us. The only way we can experience relationship with God is if he condescends to us. And this is exactly what he's done in the incarnation. As God becomes a man, Emmanuel, God with us. God doesn't stand off at a a distance from our sin-scarred world. God comes down from heaven. He plunges himself down into the depths of our mess. He takes on our humanity in the person of Jesus. He bears the curse of our sin to redeem and to bless the world. On the cross, he opens heaven for us. We meet God face to face in the person of Jesus. Through his death on the cross, he has opened heaven for us. Do you realise how significant this is? Do you know that heaven is open to you? That you have access to God's presence? You can draw near to him with confidence because of what Jesus has done for you. We're all searching for the transcendent. The religious in our religion, the irreligious in their running, the secular on the horizontal plane. And our desire to reach the transcendent is good. God has put eternity in our, in our hearts and those desires point towards him. But the earthly things that we hope will satisfy us are just shadows pointing to a greater reality. Don't settle for the shadow. It'll leave you feeling empty and dissatisfied. There is a God who stands behind them all to which they point. C.S. Lewis writes this. These things are good images of what we really desire, but if they're mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshippers, for they are not the thing itself. They're only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. There is only one way for our search for transcendence to be satisfied. We cannot climb up to heaven to reach God. Heaven needs to come down to us, and it has. Heaven is open to you through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you haven't left us lost in our sin. You haven't abandoned us to run away from you but you've come to us on the run. You've come down into our world to save us, to redeem us, to bless us. We thank you for Jesus' death that has opened heaven for us and we wanna receive that into our lives. We wanna turn towards you as imperfect as that may be. And so Father, meet with us now. Open our hearts to heaven. Open our hearts to your presence. Help us to be attentive to you this week as we seek to live as a family of missionaries in this city.